This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has become the second U.S. spy agency to conclude that the pandemic was started by a lab leak in China. Prior to the FBI declaration, there was a lot of backlash when the U.S. Department of Energy released a similar statement, albeit with low confidence. Libby talked about these revelations with the medical record panelists on Wednesday and also asked them about how this knowledge could help us prepare for or avoid the next pandemic. Dr. Alyssa Naiman is a family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. And Dr. Fahad Razak is an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. There's been some very large scientific reviews done which acknowledge that there's areas of uncertainty, but the scientific community has still leaned towards it being most likely that this was natural transmission from an animal into a human host. And this pattern of animal-to-human transmission for a virus and then starting a pandemic has been documented many, many times in the past, and is one of the reasons we have different flu waves from season to season. So it's important to note that there was a lot of precedent for it, but there was uncertainty Then came this report uh, from the DOE, from the Department of Energy, and this FBI statement. And I think it highlights some other kind of unsavory elements to what happened in that initial question of where did the spread occur or how did it happen? And that is the politics around it. So China has been very opaque in releasing all of the data needed to make a proper assessment of what happened. Um, So the full data needed to make this call is just simply not available right now and has left gaps that have opened up legitimate questions, I think, about whether it could be uh, related to virus science that's being done in specifically the Wuhan Institute of Virology and a kind of science which is called gain-of-function technologies. What this basically means is they try and see what characteristics could allow a virus to start to spread in humans in order to develop strategies to prevent that from happening. But in order to study that, they first develop viruses that have that ability. So the question is, could a science, scientific experiment like that have led to the outbreak? You're now seeing these two agencies say possibly so. But I, again, I want to emphasize that the bulk of scientific evidence from the scientific community still leans against this being the cause. And of course, in the middle of all of this is the politics where many countries are in a very difficult position in their interaction with China right now, including Canada and the United States. And so it just adds, I think, further fuel to the fire of this confrontation that's happening. Dr. Moore, does it uh, matter in terms of, again, preparing for or trying to avoid the next one, whether it was a lab leak or natural transmission? The issue is that you want to know the cause of something, uh, either to blame somebody or to learn from it. And I think the latter should be our perspective. It's not a matter of blaming somebody. And I, I think that is what has complicated this assessment of what actually happened. It's, it's a matter of learning from it so that... Uh, this was really a catastrophic virus. And, and you know, at the end of the day, 
I think almost 100% of the people that I know have had COVID. And so if this had been a more lethal virus, uh, you know, this could have been a catastrophic event. So I think the main thing is how do we prevent this happening again, uh, whether it be from laboratory safety issues or animal uh, husbandry issues, uh, you know, whatever we ultimately have to do. Dr. Naiman, uh, in terms of uh, your practice, does it make any difference how it originated? My daily, like in the practice, no. But I think overall, I think it's a good lesson that we need to learn, whether it was a lab leak and that safety standards need to be improved in, in Wuhan because there's documentation that there was it wasn't up to the level that it was supposed to be in terms of the testing that was being done, whether there needs to be further oversight of gain-of-function testing. So there's been a lot of controversy in the United States about the NIH and funding this testing and the potential dangers that happen and whether it was a leak or not and whether or not gain-of-function testing was being done. It's a wake-up call to everybody that there needs to be further oversight so that these kind of mistakes whether accidental or not, can't happen. And then if it wasn't, I think we need to consider the impact of future of future epidemics and pandemics and the impact of, you know, humans going into environments where there's more um, animals and the risk for further exposures that will happen. And that places us as a society at greater risk for having new infections that happen. So overall, I think there's a lot that can be learned. It would be really nice if everybody had the answer. I think everybody wants the answer. They found the answer very early with the original SARS. They found the answer for the the source for MERS. And then I think this has been going on for so long that people just want to know why. Dr. Alyssa Naiman, family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And Dr. Fahad Razak, internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As we've been reporting, the field of potential Toronto mayoral candidates grew a little larger this past week. Former Toronto City Councillor Rob Davis declared he is running to succeed John Tory in the June 26th mayoral by-election. He joins urbanist Gil Peñalosa, who came second to John Tory in last October's municipal election. Rob Davis dropped by the Zoomerplex for a chat on Wednesday with Libby, who asked him why he's decided to run. Oh, boy. Well, um, to quote uh, from The Godfather, I keep trying to quit, but they keep bringing me back or dragging me back in. I'm disturbed by, I, I think, the, the direction that city council is taking the city over the last little while. Uh, I'm upset with the state of the city. I think people are concerned about safety. They're concerned about cleanliness. I think they're concerned that, that Toronto is no longer the kind uh, place of love and care that it, that it used to be. And I want to bring back uh, that era when we could walk down the streets, uh, take the subway, not feel like we're going to be accosted, not feel like we're going to be assaulted. I want, to, I want people to, who visit Toronto to remark again about how clean the city is. Um, I want them to, to you know, to to walk down the street and not wonder why there are so many homeless people on the street. So how are you going to do that? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I think, I think it's, it starts with 
uh, having a clear direction and having a clear uh, philosophy around what the priorities are. And, you know, yesterday when I uh, announced that I was running, I, I held up a, a sign. It was, uh, it was this sign. And it says Dundas, it's Dundas Street West. Right. So city council, for whatever reason, uh, well, I know the reason, but city council de- decided to change the name of Dundas Street uh, and looked at 59 other streets at a cost of $21 million. And I thought to myself, there are homeless people living on Dundas Street and the council priority is changing the name of the street as opposed to changing the lives of those homeless people. And I think that, that, that this decision is an example of wasteful spending, but it's also uh, an example or a symbol of a misguided policy initiative. Woke? Too much wokeness? Well, actually, too much wokeness, maybe fake wokeness, because, you know, we've had this discussion uh, just briefly before I came on. Um, you know, if you want to decolonize uh, the these vestiges, these symbols and these vestiges from the city's landscape, I didn't hear one person say, change the name of King Street or change the name of Queen Street. So, you know, I think it's just disingenuous, but more importantly, we have other priorities. I know we have a lot of issues in the city. Uh, believe me, I've, I've seen them. I've been a part of that decision-making body. Dundas Street is not one of them. Not one black child graduates from high school. Not one more black doctor graduates from med school. Changing the name of Dundas Street doesn't help anybody, but it sure as heck costs a lot of money. Uh-huh. I'm trying to remember. that This was all started by uh, a person. I don't even think he was black person who started this campaign. No, and, and, and quite yeah. frankly, um, I, I'm appreciative of learning the history yeah. of some of the folks. I think it's a great thing. And, and I want to tell you, again, a little anecdote. As a result of this, I went and looked up the names of the streets where I grew up. So I grew up at the corner of Vaughn Road and Humewood. And lo and In behold, my hood. There you go. <laughs> and lo and behold, Vaughn was a slave owner. Humewood is named after William Blake Hume, who was an abolitionist. So I literally grew up at the corner of abolition and slavery. I, I'm jokingly <laughs> saying with my mom. But, but, but that's part of the complicated history of our city. It's part of the complicated history of our country. And I think um, spending too much energy and time trying to wipe out the history of our community is not the most important priority. Final question. What about money? You raising money? It uh, takes a lot of money to run for mayor. It takes a lot of money. I'm not a wealthy uh, individual, and I'm asking people to make donations or at least to commit to making a contribution and to helping. But I'm not so much worried about the money as I am about the ideas. Um, you know, money is important in politics. I'm going to need people to make financial contributions as generously as they can. We'll take $2 donations. We'll take, you know, $1,500 donations. That'd be great. Um, but I'm more interested in, in people coming out and volunteering and helping because I think um, that good ideas will overcome uh, money. Rob Davis, a former Toronto City Councillor running to be the next mayor of Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, why are the Ford PCs not spending the money they budgeted for health care, education and other priority areas? Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer provides some insight next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The province's financial accountability officer has released his latest report. And once again, the governing Ford PCs are spending less than the budget available to them. Over the first three quarters of 2022-23, the Tories expected to spend just over $129 billion. But actual unaudited spending was just under $123 billion. That was $6.4 billion less than expected. All sectors spent less than expected, led by other programs, then health, education, children's and social services, post-secondary education, justice, and interest on debt. Opposition MPPs call this unacceptable and inappropriate, especially given the crisis in health care. What does this mean for Ontario taxpayers? Libby was joined by the FAO, Peter Weltman, on Thursday to discuss. So we've seen some things like, um, you know, they haven't spent quite as much in public health as they plan to spend, $600 million. And you might ask, well, why is that? Well, we haven't had the public health crisis. A lot of that money was set aside to deal with COVID and other public health crises. That has started to go away, so they haven't had to spend it. Another one I think is worth pointing out is uh, the electricity subsidy. They underspent so far by $655 million. And why is that? Well, we've had a very warm winter. So electricity consumption has been a way down and the subsidy is tied to consumption. Oh, to consumption, because I was going to say we've had a very warm winter, but those bills are up. The bills are up, but the volumes are down. And these and the bills that are up really, I think, are gas, natural gas. I I know mine is. Um, And those prices have gone up. Uh, but consumption of electricity has gone down, and that's, again, where the, the subsidies are tied to. But then you had another question, which was, where is this money going to go? Uh, what are they going to do with it? And that's something that would be worth asking asking the government. Oh, okay. Uh, in the past, uh, where has the money gone? I'm assuming some of it has gone just to, uh, you know, spruce up their deficit numbers. Well, you know, we'll see in the next quarter because that's this. You know, this is the third quarter. There's still uh, three more months left in the fiscal year, and uh, that's often where we see a lot of uh, changes and additions. And there's usually a fair bit of money that gets spent in the final final bit of the year. So we'll be able to better answer that question. But certainly, if that money is not spent or not reallocated, then yes, it'll go straight to uh, reducing the the deficit and uh, reducing the government's debt. And. Uh why is it it seems like a lot of money is often spent right at the end of the year? And sometimes people have pointed out that uh, in some departments and in some cases of government spending, that the money is just being spent uh, for the sake of spending because their budgets will be cut if they don't spend it all. Oh, that's not entirely, that's not always true. Um, so the end of year spending is something we'll probably talk more about in the next report. Uh, a lot of uh, programs that get rolled out in the middle of the year, sometimes they take a little while to get to get up and running, and that's pretty normal. 
I think the childcare piece is interesting because there was some underspending in childcare, and we know that there's been some rollout problems. There's uh, folks haven't signed up, the, the, the providers haven't signed up in the numbers that the government expected them to, and that's that's perfectly normal with new programs. So sometimes there's a catch-up that happens, and that's why you see some of this in the fourth quarter. The other thing you see a lot in the fourth quarter is a lot of accounting adjustments because of the way Ontario's books are structured. <clears throat> So there's a lot of regular bookkeeping that happens. Uh, so those are pretty those are pretty typical. The thing that I get concerned about though is on the the un, when the underspend amounts get very large, which are starting to be, is uh, to me that's a bit of a, a lack of, of transparency on the budget plans. The MPPs approve a budget, they approve a spending plan, and if the government is has you know is not spending. The, the the money in the way that the MPPs had approved or is spending less than what was approved, there should be some ability to ask the government as to why these things are happening. And there's often some valid reasons. Okay. Anything else you want to leave us with? The reason I get hung up on underspending is because, again, it's a transparency issue. If you're asking for money that you either don't know if you can spend or don't intend to spend, um, it's not transparent with with MPPs who are approving it and the public who are whose money you're spending. And secondly, if you need more money as a government, you always have the option of going back to the legislature if there's a process uh, to do that. Uh, and it requires the government to come back and say, okay, we need more money, as they did in, pa- in the pandemic. We need more money. Here are the reasons. Here's how we intend to spend it. And it adds transparency to the system. Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer, Peter Weltman. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There is talk of doing away with formal citizenship ceremonies in Canada, which are seen as important and meaningful milestones for new Canadians. Now the suggestion is that instead of taking part in ceremonies, people could make their attestation alone by computer and become Canadian with the click of a mouse. Libby was joined for a conversation about this proposed change by Daniel Bernhard, CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, and Yaniv Orr, Chief Technology Officer here at Zoomer Media, who is also a new Canadian. I got my citizenship in August 2019, and it was a lovely ceremony. (laughs) So tell me about it. Well, it's a bit strange, especially for me, if you will ask almost anyone who knows me. I don't think the word sentimental will be the one that's used most no, often. No, no, even when we were uh, considering you as a guest, like that came up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even I think that it is an important milestone and it was something that I looked forward to because it shows the path that you went through and it shows your commitment to your new country. And personally, I think it's going to be a huge shame if anyone ever cancels that because it is an exciting time for people that participate. And uh, what I read is that some of these bureaucrats think uh, it would cut maybe three months off the wait time. How long did you have to wait you know, beyond the time that was needed to qualify? Uh, For me, it was actually very fast. I needed to postpone my test and ceremony because I had a a trip abroad. And even that got rescheduled within less than a month. So uh, at least before COVID, there was no real backlog as far as I remember. It was fairly quick. As soon as I was eligible, I got summoned to do the test. And following that, three weeks after that or something like that, the ceremony. Okay, so uh, to make it go a little faster, you don't think it's a good idea? 
Uh, no, and I hope that most candidates will also uh, agree that it's worth the extra wait because it is an important and exciting moment. And at least it was for me. What do you make of this idea? I think it's important to understand the origins of, of this announcement. Um, the Minister of Immigration a year ago was responding to a huge amount of pressure because of the massive backlog in the system. At that time, there were almost 2.8 million people waiting in line for some form of immigration paper to be processed. And so he announced a state of measures to try and speed things up, and one of them was this written attestation option. I think that the good news is that the backlogs, at least in the category of citizenship, are going down. Um, and unfortunately, however, we're, we're still stuck with this, this, um, this, this regulation now, which is going to say that basically you can click a box from anywhere in the world and become a Canadian citizen. It's like, uh, you know, going through university and just getting your degree in the mail without a ceremony or, or going to, to get married by just signing a contract with, with no reception or anything like that. So we are missing out as your, as your previous, um, speaker just said, on a really important lifetime milestone for people who are becoming Canadian citizens, but also it's an important opportunity for people like you, Canadians who've been here for a longer time to participate in this and show that citizenship is important. So maybe this can be modified to be reserved for like really extreme cases where people have been waiting a really, really long time because there are harms that, that arise from this. Uh, some people are stuck in the country waiting for their ceremony. So there are some people who are in a bind, but hopefully this would be the exception and not the rule. So in general, I think there are a very small number of people who think it's a good idea, and they're the people who've been waiting in line forever to finally get this done, um, and they're tired of waiting. But the general public, including uh, including newcomers and recent citizens, uh, in my review of the commentary anyway, seem to overwhelmingly um, dislike this idea. Yaniv, I'm going to give the last word to you. Well, uh, I think a lot of good points were raised, and I do hope that out of everything that was said, at least one thing will be taken into consideration, that even if they want to move forward with something like that, it should be the exception on very specific cases and not the rule, because it will be a shame if everyone will be not able to participate in such ceremonies in the future. Yaniv Orr, Chief Technology Officer at Zoomer Media, also a new Canadian, and Daniel Bernhardt, CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Jeff in Brampton phoned in on the idea of doing away with citizenship ceremonies. This is a huge opportunity for scammers to uh, get fake identities in Canada. It's ridiculous. Michael in Bolton also called about citizenship ceremonies. I came over in, uh, with a family in, in 1949 from, from England, and um I didn't get my citizenship. I remember now getting it up in, in Newmarket, 
uh, I guess at a courthouse up there. Uh, it was about um, um, I was about forty years, maybe fifty years after I, I'd come to Canada. But it was, it was quite a, an interesting experience, though. John in Peterborough called to say he wants the public health care system to stay fully public. The people that mostly want this privatization are people with lots of money. Now, years ago, when we didn't have that, they went down to the states and they paid. And good for them. They have the money. Now, if we have no privatization here and we keep it the way it's been for years, then those people that will be moving into these private companies to get more money, nurses, etc., well, they'll have a choice. Either go into the system or go down to the states. Now, they tried this before in the states, and most of them came back because they didn't like living there and what they had to live in. So no privatization whatsoever. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Danny in Etobicoke, who is in favor of keeping Canadian citizenship ceremonies as they are. My parents came here in the 50s. I remember helping them study for this test, all of the, 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 the pomp, the pageantry that went with it, and they still have the certificate up in their wall. It's just, it's unbelievable. I think we're just losing all the pomp and pageantry and the importance of what your previous call Where, where do they come from, Danny? Uh, Italy. So w- there was a language issue as well. Oh, absolutely. And and you know what? They 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 love Canada. It was a privilege. It was it was their honor to be here. And it's just incredible that, that we're just getting rid of these things that mean so much. It, it seems like everybody wants to fast track. You know, fast food everywhere, and they they got to stop this. They've got to keep it. And, and like the previous call, the speaker said we. We have to put it back into where the importance of it and, and, and share that with everybody and make sure that when people come to Canada or any Canadians for that matter, that it, it is it's a privilege to live here. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.